0: Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Christine Pittman is a very successful businesswoman. She recently started the Time Management Insider Podcast, which focuses on streamlining your home life. And she launched this podcast off the strength of two food blogs, one of which, Cook the Story, is among the highest ranked food blogs globally. Christine launched this blog while finishing her dissertation in linguistics. And in this episode, she shares the story of learning to love the fresh ingredients from her baba's massive garden and learning to cook in her parents' Ukrainian restaurants in Canada. But plot twist, this is also the story of Christine learning... From her mother, it turns out, that to truly grow as a businesswoman, she had to let go of the story. She had to replace a focus on her own story with something even more important, a focus on the people she serves. I love this episode for Christine's open, breezy speaking style, for her obvious wisdom, and for her willingness to disrupt any storyline with a better idea. Welcome to Christine and to all of you listeners. I'm so glad you're here today. Hey, Christine. Hi, Becky. How are you? (laughs) I'm great. How are you? Good. Thank you. So, yeah, like I said, I really connected with this title, Cook the Story. And the first question that came to my mind is what story? (laughs) What story? You know, and I'm curious are you inviting your readers to tell a story with their cooking or Do you feel like you're telling your story with the cooking,
1: you know? Yeah. So the original blog that I started in 2010 when I came up with the name Cook the Story was for me to connect with people back home. I'd left Canada and moved to Florida Mm -hmm. and had a new baby. And I wanted to continue to share with food the way that I had when I was in person with people but online.
0: Mm. And
1: so it really was like my, my original blog posts were things like I took my son for a walk and walked by a woman who is in her yard picking lemons from a lemon mm. tree. And being Canadian, I was like, oh my goodness, there are lemons growing here. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it was really about, and then I, I made a, a citron pressé, so like a French lemonade. And yeah. so the recipe was for the lemonade, but then there was this story about like right. how I came across it. So that's how Cook the Story came about. It was like the story behind the recipes and what inspired them. You know, just over time, I had more and more people visiting the site and asking me questions and interaction. And it became less of a site that was for me and my thoughts and more of a site that is for helping other cooks who want to get better in the kitchen. Yeah, It's funny when you, when you start writing the things that you thought you wanted to say, or the things that you thought were your strength aren't, strengths aren't necessarily where mm. you thought they were. And it turned out that what I loved doing even more than the story or as well as Mm -hmm. the story is really explaining like the food story and not even the history like why why Mm -hmm. would you cook so for instance I one of my Mm -hmm. most popular recipes is for roast pork and it's how to cook pork roast pork perfectly or how to roast pork Mm -hmm. perfectly I think is the name and it really gets into like Why do you cook pork slowly to start? Mm. And what what does that do? And then why would you turn up the heat at the end, this reverse sear technique that people talk about? Like, what does that do? Mm -hmm. It's not just the recipe, like follow these steps. It's Mm -hmm. why? Why why are you following these steps? What Mm -hmm. is this going to make a difference? If I don't do it this way, is it still gonna turn out? Like what is the reason behind? Yeah.
0: Yeah. You're really empowering your listeners
1: with information. Yeah. I hope so. And I think for me, like I'm you know, I'm teaching my kids a little bit of cooking now too. And (laughs) It feels like if you know why, you're more likely to remember, more likely to improvise on it, more likely to feel like you can do more than if you've just memorized a step. Oh, 100%.
0: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you because good cooks don't so much improvise as much as constantly bring an entire database of knowledge to bear when they're creating. I think that's great. I think that's a really wonderful way to teach people to cook. So good for you. Thank you. Yeah. You said because you were moving from Canada to the U.S., you used to connect with people through food in person, Mm -hmm. and you were kind of transferring that to connecting with them through food via your blog. Tell me about that, connecting with people in person in Canada. How did you feel like food connected you to people when you lived in Canada? And what did you lose when you came to the U.S.?
1: Yeah, so so I had already moved. So I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, mm. which is right in the very very middle of Canada, and I had moved to go to grad school to Toronto, mm. and I'd been there for a while. So I'd already left like my you know parents, my brother, and cl- my family members. But I was in Toronto for a while, and I, I you know had a new friend group, and we would do these big Thanksgiving dinners, and mm. just always at restaurants, going to places, having people over, doing that sort of thing. And then we moved to outside of Orlando and I didn't know anyone. And I guess there were just like little differences too that I, it's hard for me to even put myself in that head. It was, you know, Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, Thanksgiving is in a different month, Mm -hmm. you know? So there was just a little bit of isolation and it really, yeah, I really think, you know, Canada and the United States are not that different. We speak the same language. We have mm-hmm. a lot of shared culture, but there are yeah. differences and I, it made me really feel for people who come from somewhere even more different because mm-hmm. if I was feeling a little lost and confused and isolated, I can't imagine what that's like. And so, yeah, it was really a way to bring that back a little bit. So I, I could still participate in Canadian Thanksgiving by, you know, sharing pictures and sharing recipes on the website, even yeah. though I could be sitting down at the table with people or cooking side by side with my mom, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So you said that it gave you a lot of empathy with people who had come from farther away. And I am curious if, you know, when you moved to the U S and you kind of had this sense of being an immigrant, again, maybe not as stark, Mm-hmm. Someone who came from another country. Did you even feel more connected with them? Did you call them up? Was there sent- this sense of almost you knew your grandparents and their story, maybe, or, or whichever generation it was that came?
1: Yeah, well, my grandparents had already passed away by the mm. time that I, my Ukraine, oh, sorry, by the time that I moved from um, Toronto to Orlando. Okay. So there wasn't that, but. Winnipeg, Manitoba, the province that Winnipeg's in, and the next door province, Saskatchewan, have very large Ukrainian and Slavic populations. Yeah, do you uh, know how that happened? I'm assuming that it happens all over the place, all the time. I know, yeah. like the area of Toronto that I lived in was called Greek Town, and there were tons of Greek restaurants. There's a Greek yeah. church. There's, and so I think it's you know one group settles, and then other family members start coming, and yeah. Certainly, by the time that my grandfather came, so my grandmother was born in Canada, but both of her parents immigrated from the Ukraine. Okay, and then my grandfather, who she eventually married, came over from the Ukraine when he was eighteen, mm-hmm. and I I think he went to Saskatchewan first because his sister maybe lived there, mm-hmm. but then he ended up in Winnipeg. And my best guess is because there was a Ukrainian community there, mm-hmm. there you know, and my my grandmother, my Baba, was actually singing in a Ukrainian operetta, and that's. Where he first saw her and heard her sing. And they say that he proposed to her that day, I believe. Or or said something like, I'm gonna marry you, or like something something that I don't know if it would go over super well today, honestly. But that that it that is how how they met. My sense of it is that it just it continued to people just kept moving there because they had friends and family and there were the resources and those things. And so I think coming to Orlando, so Toronto, where I live, didn't have as big of a community, but there still was one. There were Russian shops. I could get pierogies, just buy them on like a not any street corner, but on some street corner. Wow! <laughs> and yeah. then moving to Orlando, that just wasn't no, not no. available. Not know? a
0: large Ukrainian population in Orlando, yeah. huh?
1: No, there is there is a Polish. I'm, I'm mixing these things together: Ukrainian, Polish, Russian. They're yeah. they're, they're, they're different, but there are a lot of similarities. Sure. There are some. Mm-hmm. There are two Polish restaurants, not super far from me. Actually, okay. so there is a little bit. And my boyfriend is actually from Poland. He was five when he moved. Really? To Florida. So they, we exist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just got it in that right. Community. But it was almost like little Ukraine where you yes. lived. Yeah. Yeah, I really, I really think that that is part, part of Winnipeg had that flavor to it when my grandparents were coming of age. Mm, yeah.
0: And. You kind of experienced that doubly because not only was it kind of saturating the society at large, but you grew up very close, it sounds, to your extended family.
1: Yeah, we were really close to both sides of my family, my mom and my dad's side, but really especially to my mom's side of the family, Mm. possibly partly because after I was about five, we lived maybe a 10-minute drive from their house. Mm. They're with my grandparents a lot. And I know that I learned to cook a lot of traditional foods or learning is the wrong word. I watched it happening and absorbed, you know, Mm -hmm. things like Borscht and and pierogies. I know. I don't know when I first made a pierogi, but mm-hmm. I definitely know that I ate a lot of the potato cheese filling while standing sort of <laughs> knee height near my mom. <laughs> you <laughs>
0: learned exactly what that filling was supposed to taste like. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I
1: know that. That that's a memory there. You know. <laughs>
0: yes, yes, yes. Well, how about these potatoes? How do they remind you of your grandparents and your grandparents' home?
1: Yeah. So that potato recipe, if you've had new potatoes, like the mm. ones that are like straight out of the ground, they still have earth from your own garden clinging mm. to them and you take them and rinse them off and cook them. They have so much more flavor than mm. a regular potato. So I think that that, that recipe it's for new potatoes with dill. Part of it is that new potato flavor. Mm. And what I find is that when I make that recipe now, I don't, usually almost never have new potatoes now Mm -hmm. Um, doing that combination of flavors that recipe reminds me I can almost taste the new potato in there right I suspect that the new potatoes were ready at the same time as when the dill would be ready in the garden I have yeah, and I have these memories of the garden at my grandparents. I don't think they planted dill. I think it reseeded itself year after year. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and they would just leave it, so it was like one weed that they didn't weed when they saw it kind of growing more. And so I, I'm betting that they were ready at the same time because new potatoes are early in the summer and dill is early in the summer, and. Yeah. And they would, they would pick the potatoes and the first recipe they made. And then years later, the first recipe that my parents would make with new potatoes. And whenever I've had a garden, the first recipe that I make with new potatoes every year is this one. And it's just sauteed onions within lots of butter. And then you add boiled potatoes to it and whipping cream, like heavy cream salt and pepper. And then I always say Mm -hmm. you put more dill than you think you need and you place as much.
0: (laughs) I'm telling you, this is, this is really the ideal plate of food for me. It really is right down to the heavy cream. I am big on the cream and butter.
1: (laughs) Something happens with heavy cream when you boil, like simmer it for a while and just thickens like it, mm-hmm. it and it takes on the you know it's soaking up the flavors of everything mm-hmm. around it and thickening and it you know you don't need anything else you certainly Mm-mm. wouldn't want to add any thickener like a flour or cornstarch mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: well yeah I think there's a sweetness too that is very spring-like
1: to me yeah, mm-hmm. you know what? You, it's interesting you say that because I know this dish is heavy. Like if I if I read the ingredients, it's potatoes, butter. Yeah. Cream, right? <laughs> but it doesn't taste heavy. Yeah, it, it, I, it's so bright and light and fresh.
0: I can I can believe that. Yeah, I think because the the just that mild sweetness, and then I think really anything herb. I mean, I think herbs always lighten a dish and freshen it up. So this is to me very much like a pierogi filling. Well, I think a lot of people put sauteed onions and dill on top of their pierogies, right? But it's like usually usually a rich potato on the inside. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it's true. We don't put dill on ours. We do. uh, No, we do. I don't know how to say traditional. The traditional that I grew up with (laughs) is mashed potato and cheddar cheese filling. And I am... Positive that they didn't have cheddar cheese originally yes. in Ukraine. You know, that, yes. that's from England. So uh, yes. I see that the more traditional was probably more of a cheese curd, like a, a yeah. dry cottage cheese mixed with the potato. I don't know how or when it changed to cheddar, but definitely where I was growing up, all of the progi houses, there were numerous mm-hmm. progi houses, had the potato and cheddar progi that I'm pretty sure that even the frozen ones that you can Mm. get. I think that they even have that cheddar, but anyways, Mm -hmm. it's potato and cheddar filling. And then we would, yes, butter and sauteed onions on top. Sometimes also bacon, Mm. crumbled up bacon and then sour cream. So yes, that, that creaminess Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. potato and the onion, and then always salt and pepper on top. I don't, Mm. I'm not somebody who puts salt and pepper on food without tasting it first, Mm -hmm. but Scrambled eggs, mashed potatoes, and pierogies get salt and pepper every time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Yeah, mm -hmm. a potato needs seasoning. It just does, I think, in general. What potatoes, do you feel it's important to use a certain type of potatoes to mimic as closely as possible the new potato?
1: So I actually end up using the small red potatoes, Mm -hmm. which don't look, our new potatoes weren't red potatoes. Usually, I'm sure somebody experimented with different kinds of potatoes in that massive Mm -hmm. garden at some point, but they were usually the little, little white or brown potatoes. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the small red ones are always available. And I don't know if they taste newer, but to me, there's something about them that is lighter, crisper, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. something like that. So I do use the small red potatoes good to know good to know and tell me how these
0: potatoes remind you of your grandparents just them making them
1: that dish takes me right back to that garden the whole family would be there and we i guess my grandparents watched me and my brother a little bit and we were just there in the garden all the time and Because that dish was so, I guess it like hailed the beginning of harvest season or something. Yeah. You know, the dill's ready, the potatoes are ready. And I bite into that. And I just remember being in that garden and people being excited. I mean- we'd have just gone through a really harsh winter. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yes. 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 There is something about, you know, picking that first blueberry from my little tiny garden, you know, it just (sighs) feels there's something that's different about it. Well, and I, I have to tell you, you told this story about you were kind of sometimes, I guess, conscripted into working on the farm yourself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I have to say, your aunts and uncles, if they were there helping all the time, they must have been really good children because that's a lot to get out there and work on the farm.
1: Yeah. I think, I think we did it a lot. And the garden was big enough that I, that people, we were all taking home vegetables and things during the season. Everybody was there helping. There was a massive apple tree too, and it didn't give good eating apples, but good juice apples so we would we would harvest this tree and make so much juice and I oh I feel like my mom's gonna listen to this and have all these corrections for me <laughs> I, I remember the juice being strained through pantyhose like this is like a real like really pantyhose. yeah that it was like a bet a really good stretchy filter that yeah you, could, you know yeah and um yeah, that would happen in the little this little front sunroom that my baba had. So there was just a lot of people there harvesting apples, mm-hmm. people there planting in the spring. and And so much excitement, I think, because we're coming off of that cold winter and mm-hmm. we get to be outside. Mm-hmm. We get to be together outside. The kids are free to run around and have fun and make noise the way that they wouldn't have been indoors all mm-hmm. winter whenever we'd get together. You know, Christmas gatherings are very different from you know, Easter. (laughs) Mm,
0: That is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds so idyllic those days.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It really was. My grandfather, I called him my Gigi, had all these lilac trees in his driveway. And I don't get, we don't get lilacs in Florida that I've experienced, but I was in Alaska in yeah. June, I guess it was two summers ago yeah. and it, they just happened to have just bloomed lilacs everywhere. And I just walked around this neighborhood we were staying in, in Anchorage, and I was just like, I just want to live right here. Like oh. in, smell in this, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh, it's intoxicating. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. in Manitoba.
1: It's beautiful.
0: Yeah. Well, and I have to ask you, you said you got paid for the picking the potato bugs off of the (laughs) potato leaves.
1: Yeah. Five cents per potato bug. They'd give us uh, like a Folgers coffee can. Yeah. One of those big cans. Yeah. Me and my cousins would be sent out into the garden. We would be running around in the fields and doing whatever, and we would often go and visit my baba, my grandmother, who would be in the kitchen doing something. She's canning something. She's making everybody lunch. She's doing something. And we'd go in there, and sometimes she would hand us glasses with sugar in the bottom. So it'd be like a small juice glass with like a quarter of inch of sugar. And oh. we'd each get one of those, and we'd head out to my grandfather in the garden, and he'd chop us off each a stock of rhubarb to dip in our sugar. Oh, wow. Sometimes we'd get that. But other times you'd have us (laughs) each an empty it out to work. You you were really rolling the dice when you walked in the kitchen. You didn't know. You're either going to get fed or you're going to be put to work. (laughs)
0: Oh my word. I can just imagine like the conferences that you would have with your cousins, you know. Well, I really want some rhubarb. Yeah, but there's always the chance. And of course it was one for all, all for one, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then my grandfather, he, if he was watering anything, that watering hose got sprayed at us, you know, like, so <laughs> there's also like, we want to go see Baba and see if she has a treat for us. She might have work for us. We've also got to avoid the, <laughs> the <laughs> obstacle. <laughs> Gigi with his spray hose, because that's gonna be cold and <laughs>
0: Oh, that's right. It wasn't warm enough yet.
1: Oh, no, it was <laughs> cold warm- water. Oh, he oh, so hard. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's so cute. That's so cute. What happy, happy memories.
1: Oh, I-, I love. I had a really great childhood. I'm very fortunate.
0: Well, so continuing on this childhood, I it sounds really lighthearted and idyllic, and then. You also started talking about your parents' restaurants. And I mean, I want to emphasize it's plural, restaurants, because it can really be a Herculean effort to run one restaurant, but to have multiple, I can't really imagine. So let's start by just telling me, how did they develop this line of restaurants? What was kind of the chronology?
1: So before the restaurant business, they were already really in, in the food industry in a variety of ways, big and small. My dad was a meat inspector for the federal Canadian government, and my mom had a bunch of different jobs part-time she was a stay-at-home mom and then she would work a little bit and it was it's just interesting to me to reflect back on the fact that it was always food related so but yeah so they were in the food industry and then they started a spice packaging business the two of them were packaging buying bulk, good quality bulk spices and then packaging them mm-hmm. and selling them to individuals and in restaurants. And my mm-hmm. dad had a meat smoking business with a friend. They were making kielbasa and pepperoni and I think bacon mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So they were already doing all that. And then I'm not sure where the idea for the first restaurant came from. And the name was the Progi patch and deli. Which came about because Cabbage Patch Kids were very popular. Get out! And my parents asked me and my brother to help come up with the name, and it was my brother who came up with Progy Patch, which my parents just loved because of this like Cabbage Patch connection and cabbage, cabbage rolls. Like it all makes kind of wow.
0: love it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they started that. And the idea was mostly to have like progies, rolls, traditional Ukrainian food that people could pick up like on their way home from work from a cooler oh, in the front. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. And then they
1: also had a big deli counter with like lunch meats and different homemade salads, potato salads and things yeah. like that. So that was the first one. And then things just kind of went crazy at one point. They opened a actual dine-in restaurant in Winnipeg called the Progi Patch Cafe. Mm. And then they took over a cafeteria in a car dealership, in the Parkside Ford car dealership, and then eventually also a cafeteria in a curling rink club. <laughs> now that's Canadian. I know. <laughs> very, very Canadian. <laughs> I barely curled, but I worked in that cafeteria a lot. So I've seen my share of curling matches. I want to say match. I don't know what they're called. Wow. Curling wow. And so they had that for a while, and then they got a cottage and- they became friends with somebody who had a business there. I'm not, I yeah, I'm not exactly sure, but then they were opening the Falcon Lake Deli in Falcon Lake, Manitoba. And then come Labor Day, literally, we once sat there on the Monday. Oh, maybe it was a Tuesday. Everybody left Monday after Labor Day long weekend. We're sitting there having a cup of coffee Tuesday morning. And I am not lying, a tumbleweed went down the road. <laughs> like, you just go from like, you can't find a parking spot anywhere in town to like the
0: tumbleweeds. <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah, it's like dill and potatoes was the sign of spring. The tumbleweed was kind of yeah. welcoming in. Like, I feel like winter was blowing it along, you know, the yeah. personification of... Autumn and winter. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. So wow. then they. So I think they stopped all their other businesses at one point, and at that point, and they moved full time to the cottage and had their restaurant there. And then they didn't stop. They eventually had another restaurant in that town, and my brother got like a hot dog stand in the next oh. town over. And then eventually, they they got there's like a steakhouse, like a finer dining place. They had that one in the neighboring town as well. Wow. And then my parents yeah. retired and my brother and his wife just ran that fine dining place. It was called Pittman's on 44. They ran that for a long time. Wow. Yeah. So it was a very huge trajectory often with like three or four restaurants going at a time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ideas and excitement and always, mm. always new ideas, always trying things. It was mm. it's really an exciting thing to remember how much talking about future plans and ideas was going on in my house.
0: You know, it's really interesting to hear you say this because there's kind of like this joke, this ongoing joke about if you want to lose a lot of money, buy a boat or start a restaurant. And, you know, there's kind of everyone has the story of like their first generation parents who had to start, you know, a restaurant or a deli or a store and just, you know, worked their fingers to the bone. And if I'm being totally honest, Christine, this Mm -hmm. is probably one of the first truly positive Stories of restaurant ownership that I've heard, like you use the words like excitement, new ideas, trying, and just that is really interesting to me, because again, I feel like I almost always think of restaurant ownership and hear about it, even from podcast guests with really... They'll admit the pros. It got people ahead in life or, you know, so on and so forth. But it was just a very, very hard phase of life that kind of almost no one would want to. I mean, again, it speaks volumes, actually, that your brother and his wife took it on. They must have seen something really positive
1: that they were willing to do that. It was hard. The Progi Patch and Deli was open late on Fridays. And then we there was a chest freezer in the back of the restaurant and we would sleep on there in a sleeping wow. bag while they wrapped up for the night. And if you think about what that means, it means that my parents were working on Friday night and right. probably not making, I, I don't know, not making enough money at that point that they could just have staff, mm-hmm. you know? So when I think about it like that, like I have these memories of I, like I worked in the progi patch through Christmas vacation in December and I loved it, but there's this large Ukrainian population that we've established already existed, mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. existed there. And that meant that all of these families needed progies and cabbage rolls for their Christmas dinners and Christmas mm-hmm. gatherings. And most people don't have the time or the knowledge to make them themselves. Mm-hmm. So they're turning to all of these progi houses. Well, well, the houses couldn't even supply them all because it was such demand at that time of year. Somehow my mom got the gig and became the supplier for several of the other places for cabbage rolls wow. and progies. So we were not only just serving our customers, but like other people's customers. And my mom talks about how she would make progies and cabbage rolls all day, like a really long day. And then she would go home and go to sleep and dream about making Uh, all night and wake up more tired than she was when she went to bed the night before, you know? So they did work really, really hard, but I think they really loved the freedom of not having like a boss and being able to take their ideas. My dad is a huge idea guy. He Mm -hmm. just always coming up with some new, new plan and that they could run with those and explore those things sort of, and We lived a very middle class, maybe Mm -hmm. upper middle class-ish life eventually Mm -hmm. from all of this. So I think it was a lot of hard work, Mm -hmm. but a lot of payoff too. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I tell this, again, I tell this very idealized, like I was the kid growing up surrounded by all these people and this food and it was exciting, wonderful. I don't know that my parents would report it exactly that same way.
0: (laughs) You know, it would be interesting. It would be really interesting to hear. And of course, retrospect changes memories also. Time and honestly, the the way things end up, the fact that it ended up successful and your brother and sister-in-law, you know, kept it going. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm sure all of those things would weigh in on their memories. And I think, you know, their memories from each other. Yeah. Maybe we'll get them on together (laughs) to talk about it. I would love to hear. I find it interesting also that your dad came at it. Well, your mom too, because she did spices. They came at it almost always. I think people start restaurants because they want a, a love of cooking, and your parents both came at it from a supplier standpoint i'm not saying they didn't love to cook but i wonder if they had an expertise or a strength going in that is less common coming at it from a supplier standpoint what do you think
1: i think it's possible and if i think about like i said that first concept their first actual like restaurant wasn't it, it did have a couple tables in the front but it wasn't really a restaurant it was a supply yeah yeah it was like yeah. a little mini grocery store almost and i'll say that the, the falcon-like deli, the one that they eventually moved to their cottage and opened, oh, they had the bakery next door, homemade bread, my mom made homemade soups, the food was unbelievable. But they also originally started with this concept of having prepared foods ready for cottagers and campers, like, you know, steaks in a marinade and sealed and ribs already cooked and ready to warm up. Like they had that, that didn't end up taking off as much as the sit-down restaurant food in that place. But this idea of supply, For homes, not just for the restaurant was there. And I wonder if that is where that came from. And if maybe if that made some difference. I know that my mom always, always says that she won't serve something to somebody unless she thinks it's delicious, like all Mm. the rest. The only exception The only exception I know of was something called Honeydill sauce, which, if anybody is from Manitoba, (laughs) will know that that is the only thing that you get served with chicken tenders, like chicken fingers. Oh, really? Anywhere in Manitoba and nowhere else. Uh And there's like a history about it online. You can read that it was one of the these restaurants at I think the Forks it was called, and that's and that's when like chicken fingers first hit the restaurant market. Yeah. And that was the sauce they sold with them, and it just caught on. And so (laughs) like (laughs) even. I don't your mom hated it. My mom did not like it, but that's what people (laughs) wanted with their chicken fingers. So she had to make it and she was like, I don't know why people eat that," but it was her one exception. (laughs) She had to love
0: everything, but that she was okay. (laughs) She had to bow to the masses. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting because again, that does bring up that she was just kind of an amazing natural cook and a knowledgeable one too, but it really does seem like they came to it with a unique set of strengths. They had the cooking side, but also it sounds like a really good head for business, both of them.
1: Yeah, I, I think they did. And a, a good head for wanting people to have a great experience too. They're very mm-hmm. welcoming. And I, I feel like a little bit of it was, you know, wanting people to eat at their table in a way. And that sounds super cliche, but like, mm-hmm. I really like this thing that my mom wouldn't serve anything that she didn't mm-hmm. love it. I mean, right down to like, if they had convenience things that they were using in the kitchen, the the distributor would bring it and she would taste it and just be like, no, this isn't, it, it might save me tons of time, but it's not good. Like it's yeah. not, it's not delicious. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that like high, high standards. And- yeah, they
0: were truly, truly hospitable. You know, they call it the hospitality
1: industry and she mm-hmm. really, she considered
0: it almost an extension of
1: her home. Yeah, I really think so. So it was this hospitality and and this hard work. And like if you think about, like we started talking about my grandparents and the garden, they were out there with their big garden working all the time. And there's like work ethic. You you do stuff. You don't just sit and watch TV.
0: I find it interesting. Also, I think that it's hard on a relationship to be under a large amount of stress. I imagine there must have been financial stress. You know, obviously things grew, but mm-hmm. it takes risk to start all these things. And I'm thinking they must have been a remarkable couple <laughs> to withstand this level of stress. Do you remember, you know, seeing that? Were there things that you thought, you know, I have
1: very few memories of bad times between them at all. And I can remember telling my first serious boyfriend that I wanted a relationship like theirs. They still... Wow hold hands when they walk places. They're each other's best friends and they yeah. still, you know what I'll say and this this, this is going to blow your mind. So my brother and his wife don't have that restaurant anymore. But they took over the management of a golf course in the town oh, that wow. they live in. So my sister-in-law runs the kitchen and all the banquets and catering. My brother runs the golf events and tournaments.
0: Wow.
1: Guess who works for them?
0: Your parents.
1: My parents. My mom helps in the kitchen. They both help with catering. My dad helps on the golf course. Those four people are family members who've been working together for years. And sometimes in the heat of the moment in the kitchen, there can be an argument. There can be a spat. But they don't bring it home. And they they talk about work at home. Absolutely. But not that part. Like, I think they, I, I was never as good at this. But they're better at, like, letting it go and they love talking about their work and their work is their Mm -hmm. hobby Yeah, and and that brainstorming of ideas and, and, you know, Oh, that staff member isn't great in that position, but maybe she'd be really good over here. And Oh yeah. And maybe we should, this Mm -hmm. menu item doesn't get ordered enough and we keep the smoked salmon, keep spoiling. Maybe we should add more smoked salmon things to the menu or maybe we should take off or we should do, you know, all of that. They seem to love it. Talking yeah. about it and they keep doing it. And so yeah, they're yeah, yeah. very unique. <laughs> yeah, it is
0: it is unique. And you know, if either one of them didn't have the same drive or the same passion, mm-hmm. that could have been a real problem.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, they both they both worked very hard and really seemed to enjoy building it together. Yeah. Mm. That's
0: beautiful. So I'm wondering, you're an entrepreneur, obviously a very successful one. And I'm wondering, what did you learn from watching them? Yeah, I I mean, sometimes
1: I think I learned that I have to do everything myself and do it Mm. perfectly and work really hard.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good, that's a good question to add on. Is there anything you had to unlearn from watching them? (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, I I think that these lessons were there. I just interpreted them wrong. I mean, obviously my parents did have staff. Right, mm-hmm. and they did hand off a lot of the jobs, but I, it's hard to think of like my my food blog and the sort of food media business running parallel to theirs. I think there was a while where I thought I had to do everything myself, mm-hmm. and that I'd learned that from them. And then at some point I realized, like, wait, no, they did have staff. I can have, I can let go of some of this, mm-hmm. and it's not going to be the end of the world. Was it
0: almost like you needed
1: permission to
0: do that, though? Like you almost needed to remember that they did that in order to feel okay about doing it yourself, do you think?
1: Yes. yes, I, I think that I was trying hard to make it all perfect and make it make money and make it grow and be proud of it. And that was my my business, and nobody else could like do it as well as me or something. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. And I don't know which parts of that come from them, but I do know. Mm-hmm. That they have said so many times that they never handed their restaurants over to like a manager, even when they had multiple ones going on, they would have to leave somebody in charge and, Mm -hmm. you know, compensate them in, in that sort of way. But like, they were still there a lot, you know, they were going back and forth and they were seeing it all and they were there and they felt like one of the reasons that they succeeded where other restaurants failed was because of that super Mm -hmm, mm hands-on approach. And so I think I internalized a little bit of that and didn't Mm -hmm. know if I could trust somebody else to do what I was doing. And Mm -hmm. I have had to unlearn parts of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: So did you get a master's in linguistics or were you starting to get a master's in linguistics?
1: No, I got a master's in linguistics and then I did most of a PhD. I actually- did all the qualifying papers and proposed my dissertation and wrote two or three chapters. Wow, Christine, you were like right there. Oh, I know. It's agony for me to think about it. Is it? I love linguistics. I just, it had gotten to a point where, so I was doing, my research was on a language called Inuktitut. Huh which is spoken by the Inuit people in Canada and um, a little bit in the States and a little bit in Greenland. Um, It's an Eskimoan language. So Eskimo, which they prefer to be called Inuit, Eskimo people. So I was going way up North to do research like near the Arctic Circle. Then when my husband got a job offer in Orlando. At the time we had a newborn Mm -hmm. and I was on maternity leave for a year from the PhD program. So I wasn't teaching and I was like kind of like on hold. I didn't have to do anything that year. And it just seemed like a good time to move to Florida. And then once I was here and separate from all of that, just realized that it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And I put my son in like a childcare, maybe it was probably a year later. Yeah. I gave myself four months in the summer and I said, you know, you're going to work on this. You're going to do this. And if it's not close to done at the end of the summer, this is it. And this I just- This being the
0: dissertation.
1: Yeah. The dissertation. And instead I was working on my food blog. <laughs> wow.
0: It's crazy. That- it is. But that was like bold of you to just, I mean, I think a lot of people would just drag themselves through something they didn't want to do. And you just said,
1: yeah, no. Just knowing that I didn't want to be in academia. Like I just, yeah. Yeah, I have a lot, I have a lot of friends, obviously I have a lot of friends who are doing great. They have amazing careers. It's really fun to watch like, oh, I yeah. would have been doing that. Yeah. And then I'm really grateful that I'm not, you know? Yeah. And yeah.
0: You're a- like, yeah, like I, you could have, and mm-hmm. you chose not to. And isn't that the most I think when you can own your decision, mm-hmm. man, it's so much easier to find contentment.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's true, and I I feel very grateful. You know, I was in a life situation where it was I was able to do that and to explore what I really wanted to do with my life, and so um, not everybody has that opportunity. No, I'm, I was very lucky, and yeah, um, and then it turned into this this crazy great business that I love more than anything. So- right, <laughs> right. It's more about not liking academia. I still love linguistics. That's Um, great. And I imagine you
0: actually need a distraction as you pursue this business.
1: Yeah. It's a weird thing when your hobby becomes your business uh, and then your former business becomes your hobby, I guess. Is that (laughs) that what I did there? It is a little bit. Yeah. Oh, sheesh. Um, (laughs) I think I'm blushing because that's just so, so hilarious.
0: I think it's wonderful. What a rich, rich life that you've been able to pursue multiple loves and interests.
1: Yeah, I know. It, it is really great. But yeah, I think I think that having food as my hobby and then my business it's been and it was it was my biggest hobby for ever you know like mm-hmm. I was I was always when I was in grad school if we were having people over for dinner on like a Saturday I would be cooking all week like I would start on Monday with like yeah. the meal plan and whatever and then the grocery list yeah. and then Tuesday I'd be baking bread and then Wednesday and it was just this like thing that I, I yeah. did and loved and then yeah, um, yeah,
0: yeah. I can relate
1: to that yeah, and then to lo- sort of lose that as a hobby once it became my business and and that that was tricky. And mm-hmm. I still find that tricky. When did
0: you say okay, this isn't going to be a hobby?
1: There this thing happened. I went to a workshop in Phoenix called Blogging Concentrated and it was at that workshop that I realized that my food blog was not a hobby and that it was a business and I needed to start treating it like a business. And it, that summer I ended up hiring our babysitter, who is just really a hardworking, great person who was looking for a summer job. I hired her. She was my first employee and taught her how to edit food photos. And what I wanted to do was get a whole lot of content done and ready to publish online, mm-hmm. so that I wasn't always chasing it. Like, I, I yeah, was, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I need to cook something right now because I haven't posted something in three yeah. days. And I, it was happening too much, and it was ongoing. And I had this idea; I wanted to do a full year series of soups. There, it's called um, Soup in Fifteen, is what it was called, mm-hmm. and then they're all homemade soups that are ready from start to finish in 15 minutes. And I wanted to do a whole year of them. And I was terrified that it was going to become this promise that I made Yeah. that I then had. So I hired Madison, the babysitter, and I cooked those 52 soups that summer, as well as a whole bunch of other content so that I could basically continue to cook like a couple, like one thing a week. And yeah. if I, if I had it all scheduled out and then just cook one thing a week, well, now we're, a, we're always like a year ahead. Right, 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 right. And that summer it was agony. Like I was, I was cooking all day, shooting, picture styling and, and I was tired and <laughs> yeah. it was not fun anymore. And, you know, my, my husband would get home from work and, you know, what's for dinner. And I'd say, well, there's tomato, basil and Manhattan clam chowder and chicken noodle soup. You can have all three or you can have <laughs> one. And so I think that like the joy of cooking was lost, but also sort of the joy of cooking for someone because I wasn't cooking for him or yeah, for myself, Yeah. You, you know? were
0: cooking for the photos and the blog. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it really took a lot of the fun hobby part out of things. There's a few years there where I didn't like cooking for the blog and I didn't like cooking for my family. And it And when I had to do it, it felt like a chore. Yeah.
0: You were living the life of your mom with making mm-hmm. progress all day, dreaming about it at night, waking up more tired. And, exactly. Um, so yeah. my my question is, because, you know, again, this is this is a position you, you chose to put yourself in. So my question is, when you were back there at Blogging Concentrate, you said, I really want to like dig into this phrase, you realized it was a business. Mm-hmm. Is it that you were like, well, I'm just having so much success, I couldn't possibly turn it away? Or was it, you know, it almost feels like you like accepted this mission or calling, you know, and the way that you say it, what was it that made you say, I am going to have a mindset shift here. I'm really going to pursue this. And did you, even though it got tiresome when you were in the weeds, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. did you feel joyful at the moment
1: of making that decision? Yes. And okay. um, yeah. And actually, thank, thank you for asking that question, because as you were talking, it clicked into my head exactly what happened. Mm. And I don't know how this is going to sound, but yeah. I'll say it anyways. I, at that point, was getting enough traffic that I was cooking for the traffic without knowing what the traffic wanted. Huh. Um, so before that conference, so I was like chasing trends and chasing other bloggers and looking and trying to figure out like, oh, how can I get the next viral thing? How can I get the, and not really thinking strategically about it. So Hmm. I was trying to grow the business. I was trying to get traffic on some level, but I wasn't thinking about it as a business person. You know, I guess I was thinking about it. Why why did I want the traffic for the prestige? Did I want, I think I wanted to be able to say to my other blogging friends or like family, I don't know who, Ooh, I get, You know, 100,000 people come to this site or like, oh, it's growing. I I think. Well, I think
0: I think we feel this pressure to justify the hobby sometimes. Like it's almost like it can't be enough to be like, well, I love it. (laughs) It's like we have to justify it. And how do we justify things, especially in our culture, our mindset? Well, with numbers and particularly with dollars.
1: Well, and also the justifying is an interesting point because I was essentially a stay-at-home mom. And mm-hmm. at that point, I'm trying to think if Emily was born. I think Emily had been born. So I had like a three-year-old and a new baby. And I was spending a lot of time on this blog yeah. <laughs> that wasn't making money, right? Yeah. I wasn't yeah. contributing. It worked really well. So so my ex-husband is is a wonderful person and he is – A computer programmer, high level, and he writes books about this very open GL. It's a very technical thing that he does. And we decided, the two of us together, that it was going to be hard for me to work outside the home because he traveled a lot. He worked hours. And so it was like a strategic decision between us that I would stay home. And my brain was the kind of brain that couldn't Needed, yep. needed lots more. So there yeah. was also this justifying of like my kids were in childcare sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Working like what is going on? Yeah. So it's not just justify the hobby. It's justify not. We didn't put money into the site at that point, but the time yeah. that I was, I was using. Yeah. So I, I felt like I needed to justify it, and I was trying to justify it with numbers, and it was there that I learned at that workshop. How to look at the numbers and see what people were liking about my website, and then make strategic decisions for the site and figuring out what my readers actually wanted and would find useful, instead of running out there and chasing all the trends on Pinterest. Yeah,
0: you know what you said in your write up was absolutely fascinating to me because when people say I'm choosing to look at it as a business. Mm-hmm. I think what they usually mean is I'm choosing to seek profitability, but for you, it sounds like the mindset shift was rather than again, writing about these cute little stories, like no disrespect to my podcast, which does respect the story, (laughs) but rather than using that as your starting point, you decided, you actually decided to become customer based. And that was what defined a business to you was centering it around the customers is really what it sounded like. Like when I read your write-up to me. And that was absolutely fascinating to me. I've never heard anyone describe shifting from a hobby standpoint to a business standpoint based on the focus going from themselves, you, to your reader, your customer. That was fascinating to me that that was the mindset shift. Again, that that's how you defined a business. You see what I'm saying? Yes
1: and I feel like you you should be a business coach Becky. I feel like <laughs> I'm I'm making these connections like it it sounds a little bit like what we were talking about with my mom treating yes with that hospitality like I there's something in my mind that was it wasn't about money it was about my customers who aren't paying me but these people yeah. having a great experience and wanting to come back and wanting to be there and I think I I knew enough about the industry at that point to know that if I could figure that out, there would be money. So you kind of decided being a
0: business means being customer, which is your reader based. Mm
1: -hmm. How did you
0: make that shift? What did that mean to start basing your blog around your reader?
1: Yeah. So I guess it meant, I think, two big things to me. One of them might make you Sad? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding. It was sort of losing the story part of yeah. Yeah, story. I stopped telling as much of the story. But what I started doing was what I loved from the cooking shows that I enjoyed. That just all, all sorts of little things yeah. about. Cooking that I was learning, and it was a lot of this why explanation. Why do recipes say to do it this way? Yeah, and I really wanted the recipes to help people and tell them information that they needed. So when you come to one of my recipes now, you the recipes at the bottom, and there's a a blurb at the top, but it's not about my neighbor's lemon tree. It's right, you know. (laughs) it's about why you have to wash your lemons before you cut them, or like something like that. You know. Yeah. So I I really started doing that, and it's interesting because this was that was before all of the new information about search engine optimization, SEO, was out there. Now we know that Google has this algorithm that can tell if your article online is about what it's supposed to be about. Yeah, if it's a recipe for potatoes with dill, you should mention potatoes and dill and boiling and water and salt (laughs) and a pot and a stove and like all these things that it shouldn't be about my grandfather's big garden and that he was from the Ukraine, you know? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So that if somebody is Googling for potatoes with dill, Google wants to make sure that they're coming to my recipe and not to my story. So I was doing that. And I think that's part of why my blog grew so much when it did was I started doing that before the algorithm was necessarily looking for it. And yeah. so that...
0: Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting because it completely aligns. Like what Google says is they want the user experience to be positive when they go to a site that they recommend. And what you said was, I want this to be about my readers. So yeah. you guys were trying to meet the same goal. And I guess this means, <laughs> sorry <laughs> to say, that Google's algorithm actually works. <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I, I love the Google algorithm. I'm always amazed by like, if you just type in like one word. I like, oh, one of my favorite examples actually is I have a recipe on my site for how to cook chicken breasts from frozen. Yeah. I'm going to say that it's not my favorite way to cook chicken breasts. This is really for you thought you took the chicken breasts out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, get yep. and they're frozen <laughs> solid. Yeah. you can do this. But when you type frozen chicken into Google, you get how to cook chicken from frozen recipes. Mine is on the first page somewhere. You do not get brands of frozen chicken like Purdue or like Google knows when you type in frozen chicken, you're asking, how do I cook frozen chicken? Not where do I find or who makes or who sells frozen chicken? Like it's so smart. Yeah. Uh, yeah, The algorithm is amazing to me all the time, but, but yeah, so I lost the story part or at least the, literary quality story part. Mm, Yeah. And I also started really looking carefully at my statistics Mm -hmm. and seeing what was doing well on the site, what was getting a lot of traffic. And I started doing more of those things. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Stuff. Yeah. It's
0: like advice number one, you know, it's, (laughs) it's really interesting. Like there are no secrets, right?
1: Yeah. No, it's not, you know what I heard, I heard the line, I think it was at the blogging concentrated. It's like 90% of your profit comes from 10% of your work or it's 80, 20, one of those. I'd heard that a million times before. Like that's not new that that is true in, in a lot of business, but I hadn't realized that it was true for my stuff. And like when I, and it's so true, like my site does really well for roast pork for some reason. Yeah. So you know, Google has decided that I'm an I'm the pork queen, and I am a pork expert, and it it ranks me very highly for a lot of pork stuff, and so I do more pork stuff. And what ends up coming up into my top ten is more and more pork stuff. Like Isn't that <laughs> interesting,
0: yeah. And so this is this is one of my questions that I have. It is a commitment, like you said. Like there was this massive mindset shift, and for you, it's been wonderful. It's exactly what you wanted to do. For other people, they might not want Google and statistics and Pinterest to dictate to them what mm-hmm. they do. If someone's sitting there like on the fence, you know, and traffic's kind of picking up and they're doing well, what would you say? Like, how would you advise? If someone's already made the decision, I want to do whatever it takes mm-hmm. to build mm-hmm. a big successful high-traffic, profitable blog, you could totally coach them on how to do it. I want to go a step back. What Mm -hmm. if somebody's like, I love this blogging thing. It's a happy hobby, but I don't know Mm -hmm. if I want to take that step. What would you say to them? Are the pros and the cons, and what would someone need to think through?
1: You're right. I have a lot of advice for people who have already decided to do it. The, The decision to do it is really tricky. The thing about food is you need to eat yeah uh, to survive as a human so we need to keep doing this yeah. <laughs> and if you enjoy doing it that you are super fortunate i mean yeah. i think about you know my mom dreaming about progies and hating that and and mm-hmm. me having the several years of really dreading cooking for my family and and feeling like I, it had been sucked out of me that is something that can happen i think it you have to weigh the like do you have the time it takes a lot of time mm-hmm. right I, I feel like it takes even more time now. Like I feel like anybody mm-hmm. starting now, social media barely existed when I started, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I, now you just no, have to like,
0: like feed the beast.
1: Yeah. There were no Facebook business pages. Like if I promoted something on Facebook, it was just to my 111 friends and family. <laughs> like <laughs> there was, there wasn't, there were no memes. I mean, I mm-hmm. guess there were memes, but not like the way we think about it now. And yeah, there was no Instagram. There was, it was very different. So the learning curve is probably a lot steeper now. So it's a lot of work and a lot of time. And if you're on the fence and don't know if you want to turn that hobby into a business, it probably means that you shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's a lot of work and there's no guarantee that you can make money from it. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry. I would love to say, do it.
0: (laughs) No, I think that's really good advice because again, I think it comes down to owning your decisions and being free. And if it's something that gives you joy and you want to do it in your own way, then you have to, like every choice has consequences. You have to accept that. Like you can absolutely do anything you want in your own way, but you have to accept it's not going to magically perform the way a blog thinking like a business is going to perform. It's just not.
1: The other thing would be, like I was saying, like chasing other bloggers, seeing what other people are doing yeah, is really disheartening if yeah. you're, if you're trying to get to that point and maybe try to find people who are at the same like stage as yeah. you are and talk with them about this rather yeah. than looking outward at, don't compare yourself to Reed Drummond and
0: <laughs> they- <laughs> well, yeah. And there's, yeah, there's a, there's a level of serendipity, I think with all of this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's it's, it's like what it's that saying. It's like preparation plus luck. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you already are a great cook. You love food. You have some Internet savvy. You have this preparation. And then is that luck that I like I said, that thing where I switched to telling the story to talking more about the why behind the recipe happened right around like maybe a year before that became the thing. And it has served me well. If it, if it had not happened or if it had happened a year later, I don't know if this is where I'd be right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Again, you really have to want to do it because one way or another, you have to enjoy the journey. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be a job a job is a job there's whatever but you have to enjoy it at some level because yeah. you don't know what's going to happen. You know it's like if you had dreams to get the Nobel Prize in linguistics I don't even know
1: if it exists and <laughs> you
0: may or may not have ever gotten it but you knew for sure you weren't going to enjoy that journey. So That's you true. just you just couldn't take it.
1: You know what I think maybe a great way you just made me think of this to think about this is I knew I didn't want to have a restaurant even though I had uh, wonderful memories from my parents, the idea of being in a restaurant evenings and weekends and like so many hours. Also, when it came to academia, I remember my mentor for years, a wonderful woman named Gila. I said to her, I don't get it. You guys work so many hours. You work so hard. I, I don't understand. I don't want to work that hard. And she said to me, you're going to want to you're going, like, you're, it's going to click and you're going to love the research so much. You're going to want to want to, you're going to, you know, uh, wake up at five o'clock in the morning to read your grad students' papers and you're going to be fueled by that. And I was just like, oh, that's horrible. <laughs> don't want to want to. <laughs> <laughs> she was convinced that I was going to. Yeah. She was convinced that I was going to want to want to. And, yeah. um, and I never felt that, but, but for my blog, I mean, I did it. I, I, lovingly and joyously was yeah. not, not the cooking got hard, but the playing with the stats and diving in and editing pictures and, and all of that. Yeah. I, I, I still, I wake up on the weekends. I don't have to work on the weekend yeah. when my kids aren't here. If they're at their dad's, I wake up in the weekend, I make coffee and I sit down on my computer and I look at my websites and I yeah. look for little things I could play around and fix. And I love it.
0: Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's awesome
1: to hear. Yeah.
0: I also would love to know what is next. And again, I'm not going to ask what's next for you because you're customer-based.
1: What's next for your customers? What are you giving everybody next? Yeah. So, okay. So I have started a podcast. It's called Time Management Insider. Yeah. The TMI kills me. Oh yeah, yeah. TMI, too much information about meal planning and time management. Um, yeah, but what I think that is, and I, it makes so much sense in the context of this conversation. So thank you. You've really sort of put this in perspective for me. Um, I really feel like all of that thinking about my readers for the last, let's say, six or seven years has really gotten me into the heads of home cooks. Like I feel like I know what their struggles are. Mm-hmm. Not just needing a roast pork recipe, but yeah. like figuring out their to
0: back to the chicken breast example, it's like, why did you forget to take that chicken breast out of the oven? What was your mind on? Or why were you too busy? Or why did you get behind on your day? Right? It's like, yeah. why are you living this life of chaos?
1: I, I love this. This is so great. The funny thing about the frozen chicken breast blog post that I have is I cannot get anybody to click on anything else from that page. They come there, <laughs> they stay there for five minutes and they leave it. I have this image in my head of these like busy moms sitting at the computer with frozen chicken breasts on their lap. Being like, help me. It's exactly what's happening. And you are, you're, you are beating them where they're at. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that this podcast is kind of meta in that way. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's not, I mean, I I talk about food and recipes, but it's more about like, what do we need to be able to enjoy our home life and our food? And how how do we, how do we get there? And what tips and strategies are going to make that easier? On us and more and more enjoyable, easier yeah. and more enjoyable. So it's more of the that time management, organizing, planning, and trying to make it so that we can yeah. enjoy our families and our homes and our food. You know, yeah,
0: that is wonderful. That's a huge gift. Thank you. Yeah,
1: it's been fun. So- I love podcasting.
0: Said <laughs> <So do I. laughs> why? That's great. That's great. So tell everybody where to find you.
1: So I am cook the story everywhere, except TikTok. I'm not on TikTok yet. My daughter's trying to convince me it has uh, not yet happened, but yeah. cook the story on Instagram and Facebook and people can email me. I love getting emails at christine at cookthestory.com. Okay.
0: You're definitely on Pinterest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm on Pinterest. I love Pinterest. It's a great, I, I use it more as like a bookmark organizing system for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, that's more than finding ideas, but I do love it for that.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Christine, thank you so, so much for your time.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Becky. This has been really, really beautiful.
0: It's been fun. Yes. Okay. Have a great time in West Virginia. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Okay. Thanks. We'll be in touch. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you to Christine again for joining us. She gave me so much to think about, and I hope you too. You can find all of Christine's contact information and a link to these delicious, creamy, fresh dill potatoes in the show notes over on the storiedrecipe.com. If you enjoyed this episode, would you please forward this to a friend? I know also that you are so used to hearing people tell you to subscribe at the end of every episode, but let me tell you a little bit about what we have coming up and why you definitely want to subscribe. Next week, we'll have a re-release with Suwani Lennon telling us about growing up in a leprosy camp in Thailand. This is by far one of the most impactful conversations I've actually ever had in my life. And I know that you will be inspired by Suwani's resilience and empathy, just as I was. The week after that, we'll be hearing from Rachel Pie jones who's an author that has lived for over 20 years in Djibouti, the hottest country in the world. Rachel recently released a book titled Pillars, named for the Five Pillars of Islam, with the subtitle How My Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. This is a book I highly recommend no matter your belief system or your adherence to your own belief system. It also is a lot about community. And Rachel and I talk about living between two cultures and raising third culture kids and the unique perspectives and experiences that only a person like Rachel could bring to us. And of course, we talk about how food relates to all of that we're built halfway into the summer with even more amazing episodes. I won't bore you with more synopsis right now, but please, yes, hit that subscribe button. And finally, again, the two best ways to support this podcast are one, to forward this along to someone else and have them listen to it, and also by leaving a review. You can so easily do this no matter what device you're on, simply by going to lovethepodcast.com, The Storied Recipe. That website, lovethepodcast.com, forward slash the storied recipe will automatically detect what device you're on and give you simple ways to share based on that. I do want to thank Anissa for her recent review. She says, Becky is a natural host, storyteller, and interviewer. Her guests all come from different backgrounds, walks of life, and they are united by their love of food, family, or social justice. Every episode is like sitting down with a new friend. It's always enjoyable. And even in the more serious episodes, you leave feeling hopeful. Thank you so much to Anissa. I so appreciate Anissa and her friendship. You can find her on Instagram at The Wonky Stove. <laughs> a wonderful handle for a wonderful woman. Thank you all so much for being here. I hope you have a great week, my friends.